Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatik. Welcome to episode five of the Commercial Real Estate Podcast. I am Adam Pawatik, and my co-host, as always, is Aaron Cameron. Today, we've got one of our first national colleagues with us. It's Dave Morrison. He's Senior Director of Commercial Finance, but more importantly, he runs our, our CMBS program. For those unfamiliar with the term, that is commercial mortgage-backed security. And so he's been in the industry for a long time, you know, since 19. 19- 97. Is that right, Dave? 98. 98. Uh, okay, close. Since, <laughs> since the inception of CMBS in the Canadian marketplace. Yeah, and he's been even active throughout. So he's a great resource to uh, you know get a whole lot of information about CMBS. So that's why he's on today. Welcome to the show, Dave. Thank you. So Dave, like I, I think we'll just start from the beginning. I, I you know, it's one of those weird um, subjects where you, you, you never know what the listeners um experiences or background in, in the commercial mortgage-backed securities industry. So let's just start with the history about what it is, you know, maybe even just go further beyond that. It's a it's a type of financing for those listening that are just kind of scratching their head. It's a type of financing, I think, you know, pretty much every player, and correct me if I'm wrong, but but the banks played in the space for a little while. At some point, life codes were in the space for a little while. Um, you know, right now it's kind of off a little bit on, but mostly off. At one point, it was the dominant source of financing for any, any um any investor looking to finance a, a commercial real estate that they owned, uh, and and really it, it fits a bunch of different different niches. It, you can be um, non recourse. It can do higher leverage, and but it's 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 uh, subject to the marketplace, right? And so let's go. Let's start at the beginning. Like, how did this thing come? In? I mean, I know it started in the U.S. and sort of migrated up north to Canada at some point. And what was the first couple of years like? Sure. I think in the beginning, a lot of uh, Canadian CMBS really took its cues from where the U.S. was. And that's, you know, as you mentioned, uh, non-recourse financing, a little bit higher leverage. You know, a lot of that's not sort of specifically designed for Canadian CMBS. It was just that's what was done in the U.S. And the early players were U.S. Um, uh, so who brought, who brought it up here? Like who was the... Merrill Lynch was the first... Uh, U.S. company to come up and start CMBS, and, in that, and that's where you started too. I started there. That I, I joined them in 1999. Their first, their first CMBS transaction was in 1998. Although they probably started in 97, originating mortgages, and unfortunately for them, their first transaction came out right during the Russian currency, uh, or sorry, the Russian debt crisis. So it was interesting times from the beginning, but they they persevered and kind of pioneered the industry up here. And they're followed by some other U.S. investors like GMAC and. Um, column financial and ultimately some of the Canadian guys you know, took an interest in it because mainly it was a, a, a way of providing financing that tapped the capital markets rather than taxing a balance sheet. So some of the banks maybe got you know, high exposure to certain big lenders and, you know, a way for them to move that liability off their, their balance sheets was to tap the capital markets. So, so maybe we should start with kind of explaining what it is, right? Let's, let's just start with sure. taking the, taking no the mortgages and pulling them together and. Yeah, ideally that so that, that yeah, that's exactly correct. They you know the an issuer would start by issuing mortgages on their own book on their own balance sheet and aggregating enough, you know, generally between in the earlier days it was maybe smaller like 250 million but towards the end like 450 million into uh, you know worth of commercial mortgages worth, yeah worth of commercial and just mortgages. just for total transparency that that's pretty much any type of commercial asset right from residential to hotel multi residential sorry to hotel 
office industrial, you know, some retirement homes, a little bit of land maybe in there every once in a while. Is that, right. is that part of the goal as well is to have a diversified portfolio to offset risk? And- exactly. And it, and just to, just to you know, correct that a little bit, it was it would all be income producing kind of stabilized okay, assets. So um, stuff with debt cover, like the whole point of this is to give exposure to investors in the commercial to commercial real estate that otherwise would not be able to. So these are bond investors that don't know a thing about real estate, but want exposure to commercial real estate. So, you know, people who do know the know commercial lending and commercial real estate aggregate these mortgages, pool them together into a trust, and then that trust is sold to investors, and it's managed or serviced by real estate professionals. If there's a, was an issue, someone else would work it out. Somebody's collecting the payments and remitting those to the investors. So, you know, it really is a way for people with absolutely no knowledge of commercial real estate to get exposure to it, at least in the uh, the debt arena. So today, like if I wanted to take 10,000 bucks and buy some commercial mortgage-backed securities, I mean, would that be complicated for me to do that? If I'm sitting at my desk, if I'm a day trader, you know, sitting in my underwear, you know, in my basement office, and what well, generally in Canada, it's been is only been institutional investors, right, and, yeah. and probably uh, wearing underwear. That's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think, from what I recall, the minimum investments were like a, they were hundred thousand dollar slices. I think so. But I mean, the, the beauty of it also is because it's it's structured finance, it allows people to when they do invest in in the mortgages, they're not investing into one specific mortgage. You're investing into a pool of say forty or fifty mortgages and a bunch of different asset types, a bunch of different geographies. And beyond that, you can stratify your risk. And by that, I mean the bonds ultimately get rated by rating agencies into AAA, AA, all the way down the stack. So if you're really risk averse, you can choose to be at the AAA level uh, if you, and, and take slightly less pricing. Or if you, you certainly like a lot of risk or you really do know real estate, you go all the way down and buy the unrated or below investment grade classes. So, you know, And take a bit of a higher yield. And take higher yield. So it was, it was an interesting product from that standpoint that you can diversify your risk and choose exactly where you want to play in the risk reward you know, spectrum. And it's a longer, uh, I believe it's a, a longer payout for the lower tranches as well. Doesn't That's the right. AAA get paid out faster? And by the time you get to the ninth year of a 10-year mortgage, you're just running with the uh, the lower classes at that point? That's correct. I mean, yeah. the, the way it does work is, so you've created all this pool of mortgages and, you know, it's the, the payments start rolling in, you know, day one. And the terms are generally, it is more a 10-year product. Uh, for, for, it was more competitive to be a 10-year product, but there was also some five-year mortgages. So the way it would work is as payments come in from those mortgages, they get remitted to the bond investors starting at the AAA category first. So it's, you know, it's the typically called a waterfall. So the payments roll in from the top, go down the stack, AAA, AA, single A, all the way down to unrated. And that would also go for, you know, principal repayments, the balloon balance when the loans mature, they would retire those AAA classes first, then the AA, then the single A. So you're correct. The, the last guy to get paid is those unrated bonds. So, and conversely, as losses would occur or payments did not come in, they would go the other way. So maybe that's a good segue into the history of this thing and kind of where it went and, and what happened to it. So, sure. so, you, so you, let's go back. You started in 1999. Uh, I got some American American lenders coming up, American issuers coming up and, and starting their own CMBS pools in Canada. And then where'd it go from there? Yeah, sure. In the, in the beginning, I would say, you know, it was it was a new product, new lenders, people that weren't really familiar with the, with the um, asset class. And 
it tended to be, at least my recollection, we were doing smaller loans, sort of B and C class real estate. And, you know, spreads were, you know, at that time, you know, two handles for sure, like 250 over. Whereas, where, was, where was that in relation to sort of the A quality? Uh, what, what would that the, would have been at least, I don't know, 80, 90 basis points wider wide of, of okay. the average market and maybe even a little bit more of the best. And we say small, we say small loan, what size are you talking about? In the early days, I'd say like typical loan sizes were two, three, $4 million, okay. you know, you know, maybe so you have a lot of product in yeah. one pool. If you're doing 250 Correct. million of three, 4 million. Mm-hmm. Sure. Loans, exactly. Yeah. They're, they're, they're kind of the kind of clients that were not getting a lot of service or a lot of attention at the banks or life co's. So it kind of started, it filled a bit of a niche. There'd been a lot of consolidation in the life, the life insurance industry. So, you know, fewer players, fewer product for those types of lenders. So it was a, it was a good time to come in really. It started to fill a bit of a void. Uh, and I think 98, the first, I think there was one deal in 98, one securitization by Merrill Lynch is about $180 million. And it grew from there really. And the peak which was 2006, which is before the credit crisis of 2007 was about five and a half billion dollars of, you know, origination, which, you know, at the time was, you know, probably wow. twenty to twenty-five percent of the annual issuance, and of was, the, sorry, of the annual of sorry of, of the, commercial mortgages. Commercial world, right? Yeah, commercial so twenty-five percent of the marketplace in Canada for for commercial lending. True. Yeah, that's correct. Wow. And I mean, the uh, and how many pools was that? Do you remember that, at that point? Like how uh, many total, I mean, total issuances throughout throughout that year, throughout two thousand six? It's hard, hard for me to remember, but there's a guess yeah, by that that like point there would have been 10, 10 plus at least. Oh, okay. I mean, they would have been one a month. So about one a month. Yeah, they probably yeah. would have been in the you know four hundred million dollar range. Wow. Okay, and you know by that point you had you had a number of players, including some you know some of the life codes were doing it. There were the you know banks were doing it. TD, RBC, Scotia had some. So you know by then there was you know quite a few players. So doing, this is eight years on. It had it basically caught hold and and yeah. was, was everyone was playing in that space. Yeah, what was interesting about it as you know as time crept on there that there was quite a bit of acceptance by the you know the, the capital markets there was a product that people were interested in and they kept with each new issuance uh spreads drove in which meant you know spreads drive in you can originate cheaper so uh, you know as i mentioned before in the early days spreads were going to be 250 over you know as things progressed some of the life codes were, or sorry, some of the larger borers, like the REITs, were starting to tap out with their regular borers, and they started to look to. So you just know, mean they were over allocated, or their 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 regular lenders had said we've, we're yeah. we're, we're right, over, so like, overexposed to you, so you need to find an alternative exactly. source of financing. Like, probably right. lower yield as well. I imagine if they're trying to attract that kind yeah. of business. Well, yeah. Can you do sorry, sorry, Dave? Can sure. you do a quick like? Let's just run that through. So, nineteen ninety nine, it was two fifty over over Government of Canada bond, which was about a hundred basis points wide of sort of the typical conventional market for so let's say sort of standard standard A quality. And then where did it go? So let's say two thousand and three, which is kind of the midway mark. Was it kind of at par at that? point with the conventional with conventional pricing yeah i'd say that it was starting to compete kind of head to head with them and, and making them giving them a run for the money and in fact it was started to drive in market spreads all the way all, the, know, way all the way in yeah and then beyond that it, they started to surpass them and kind of dragged them down with them i'd say and by the end of it the height of its you know power i would say that spreads got were maybe on average 120 to 130 with the very best borrowers over like, over government of Canada over government of Canada over the you know the One, generally 10 year product over the 10 year government of Canada bonds and where was the convention so you're saying CMBS is 130 140 and where was the and, and conventional some, and some of the con, the normal players would have been in that that range but for some of the best borrowers for some of the you know flagship loans that you really want in your pool to kind of sell it 
like REIT sponsorship, you know, brand new anchored retail, Walmart, whatever. And, you know, we we're getting into sub 100 spreads. Wow. So, you know, wow. it was it was pretty tight. And that was all driven by, you know, the capital markets. And I mean, that's I think that's one of the interesting features of CMBS is it's it's a kind of transparent pricing. Like you can see how the bonds are trading in the market. There's no real secret to it. There's no black box. It's there for everyone to see. So you could see those spreads, you know, diving in. And as a borrower, you could you know, have a pretty decent idea of, you know, what kind of mortgage you could get. Whereas, you know, my, my feeling with some of the other you know, traditional lenders is it's kind of up to them and it's, it's difficult to know on any given day where it would be. Um, but roll forward to today and, you know, <laughs> what the, the, the flip side is there's been fair, there hasn't been a whole lot of liquidity in the capital markets, especially for CMBS, and that has widened out spreads. So. so, and it went on hiatus, right? So 2007 sort of credit crisis, I think the whole market just shut right down yeah. to late 2007 to early 2008. Yeah, the last deals like this, you know, rumblings kind of started happening, happening in the summer of 2007. I remember we had a transaction coming in. The fall and all summer long, we were just watching the spreads widen out, widen out to the talk. And, you know, people getting a little bit more nervous of what was, you know, seeing in the headlines. And by the end of the year, it was quite clear that things were going to really shut down. And by 2008, they really had. So, so was there, was there a defining day for the closing that there would be in a movie where people are throwing files at the windows and screaming? And yeah, there was definitely a lot of screaming. I, <laughs> I recall some, some meetings that were quite un- uncomfortable. Not, not really for me. It's for some of, the, some of the guys that had to get the CMBS pricing and delivered to my uh, my boss. So he never liked the news, but it, you know it was what it was, and there wasn't much he can do about it. I mean, it seemed like every time we got a pricing update, it was wider. So, and that I mean that was really before things were making headlines. Like that was, I do remember in the summer actually getting an email from one of my bosses in New York saying, "Don't hold out for the last nickel. I don't like what I'm seeing in the market." And that that was the first I inkling I had of issues. But I mean, I would never have you know, foreseen what. Yeah, the news didn't really become sort of mainstream until the summer of 2008, really. People started realizing, yeah. And that, that was the point as well, I think, in 2008 when spreads widened out four or 500 basis points. Oh, yeah. I mean, beyond just widening out, like, I mean, I think they were like a 10-year AAA CMBS was over an 800 spread. So, you know, and that's just the absolute cheapest part of your stack, you know, when you're trying to sell bonds. So, so guys were losing their shorts, right? Because yeah. you're originating this stuff, and then that maybe just just an explanation. You originate the, the mortgages, the loans that go into these pools, and you have to kind of speculate what you think the pool is going to yeah. sell at, right, what the bond spreads are going to yeah. be. So you're pricing the mortgage based on what your speculative, you know, hope is that the, the yeah. spreads are going to be, right? Yeah, so. that's what makes it difficult. You're, you're going along the mortgages, and then you're hoping that you can sell them you know, tighter than what you've originated them at. And, you know, it worked very well for the first, you know, 98 to mid-2007. And then, I mean, beyond just not, you know, the, where the pricing went, you know, the market just froze. Like, I mean, you can sell not just, you know, CMBS, but the ABCP market froze in Canada. Like, fixed income so products, just there's, there's no bids. ABCP is an asset-backed commercial paper? Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, there was... You know, the whole, as everyone knows from the, the news headlines back then, like you just couldn't get any trades done, period. So, you know, when I was at Merrill, we were left with, I believe we had upwards of $300 million ready for another pool that we just couldn't, you know, couldn't sell at any price. I don't Sitting think. on the balance sheet. Sitting on the point. balance sheet, yeah. Well, and it would yeah. make no sense to even try at that point to sell. Like you'd be lucky if you could find a bid. And, 
it just wasn't happening, you know, especially as things wore on and, you know, it was less about, you know, can we sell the mortgages more about, will this company be here tomorrow? <laughs> for just for the listeners and, and maybe just taking a step up or back just from a macro perspective, I mean, the real, the real attraction and the reason it, it was such a, such a big thing, you know, and, and it maybe one day will continue to be is it, it is a rollover of capital, right? So, you know, you, you originate three, $400 million of loans, sell it into the bond, sell it into the trust and you get that money back. So you just, you, every, every three or 400,000, three or 400 million dollars, you just keep rolling over. So versus, you know, life codes today that are lending on their balance sheet, they lend that $500,000 a year or $500 million a year, whatever it may be. And then that, those mortgages are out there for those five or 10 years. And that, that becomes sort of, what would you call it? Sort of static capital, right? You can't really access it again until those mortgages repay and you, you kind of, you get the principal balloon payments. But for the CMBS market was attractive because you didn't really have to have a ton of capital tied up. And of course, you're taking the fees and the, and the servicing spreads every time you roll that over. So uh, I think that's why it was so attractive and why you basically had every single major participant in commercial mortgages trying to get involved in the CMBS market in its heyday because it really was a fruitful uh, use of their, of their money. And sure. why you had giant players like Merrill Lynch coming to Canada trying to find another market to play. Right, in. because it was already saturated in the CMA. Maybe let's take a, another macro position here, Dave, and you can you can throw the numbers at us. But I mean, the U.S. market now, that's 10 times the size demographically, probably even larger than that economically. But what, what's the size of their CMBS market? And how is it looking, you know, looking today? Well, I'd have to go back and look. But I mean, it, it, because we were sort of an early, you know, CMBS in Canada was only starting to kind of get developed fully by sort of 2005, 2006. You know, the U.S. is much, you know, older, more mature market. And there's certainly a lot more market acceptance of CMBS. Like it, it would be a large portion it's of huge. their financing. I, I, I remember the, one of the other things is that, I mean, there's so many banks in the U.S., right? So there's so many players. And it's because of that sort of ability to roll capital every time you do an issuance, it, it's a really attractive way for uh, for those smaller uh, localized banks to play in this space, right? Yeah, I would say, like, and maybe that's a good time to like, just now that we're mentioning the U.S., just kind of go back to the, you know, maybe the genesis of the the credit crisis and what kind of drove the whole thing. And you know, it's probably fairly popular lore now. Everyone's seen movies and things has a good idea of how it started. But it really was the residential mortgage-backed securities in the states that got things kind of rolling. Um, but you know, CMBS or, or crumbling, I yeah. guess you want to put it. But CMBS, you know, in this U.S. had also gotten very competitive. As you mentioned, there was a several origination shops and only limited supply of products. So everyone was sort of chasing, chasing things down the credit curve and spread curve. So it, it got pretty frothy, and you know, as as the um, market kind of unwound. You know, they had a, a big spike in delinquencies and loans on watch lists, and there were you know, significant losses in transactions. Whereas, you know, in Canada, we don't think we ever got to, you know, certainly not that num- level of players or that level of kind of competitiveness to win loans. So, you know, even though the market completely shut down in Canada, there's been no real significant uptick in delinquencies for CMBS product. I mean, that's another thing that's very good about the product is, you know, you can go and look at the DBRS websites and, there's reporting on what has happened over time in that that industry, whereas it's a bit of a black box for a lot of the private mortgage guys. You don't know how whether they suffered or didn't suffer. You know, it's pretty laid bare for the CMBS stuff. You can see that through kind of one of the worst credit dislocations in history, the stuff all performed pretty well. So I'm often left scratching my head a little bit as to why there isn't more, you know, market acceptance of the, you know, the asset class and, you know, other, to be honest with you, other fixed income classes in Canada, like the MBS uh, program, the government, which is effectively a government guarantee, 
And it, it really comes down to liquidity. There's liquidity to perceive liquidity in certain fixed income products in Canada. And those ones tend to trade better, rightly or wrongly. And if they're not as strong a credit than, uh, than CMBS. Whereas I think in the US, the difference is there's tons of liquidity in, in the States and lots of players. So the price discovery is happening all the time. And it just weeds out, it arbitrages out any of those you know, risk reward you know, missile allocations. I don't. My personal feeling is that doesn't exist in Canada, and it is, it is problematic to some extent because you know, we don't capital isn't forced into its most effective place, whereas in the U.S. it really does. It really and, does. Yeah. You know, the market crumbled in the U.S. They absolutely destroyed themselves, but within a year and a half they were back issuing again because they just reset, dusted themselves off. Guys said, "I'm willing to pay here," and there's enough liquidity to kind of force the issue. Whereas in Canada. You know, I was going, hey, listen, Joe's over there is not doing CMBS, so I don't think we should do it either. And, oh, my boss will kill me if I do CMBS. So, you know, it's more, I don't know, it's hard to say it's, it's not that, it's not, not a perfect market up here. So it's, and it's still not quite back or not even kind of back to where it was in sort of those heydays, 2005, 2006, where to your point, like the U.S. is kind of back as, as per usual. And so let's talk about what happened after the crisis. 2008 kind of died down or, or stopped big, big red stop sign. And then when did it start picking up again? And, and, and how's it going now? Well, in Canada, it did shut down for a couple of years and it's, it has kind of come back and, I don't know. Drips and drabs, right? Drips and drabs. Was it uh, was it IMC that did the first issuance in 2011? I think was uh, the raising the flag again of CMBS. That's correct. I mean, they did they did kind of a it was definitely a CMBS transaction, but it was a little bit different in that it was a transaction backed by a Rio Can and Callaway REIT. So it was you know known public companies, and Mm. they were guaranteeing the debt. So in a way, you were you're buying bond uh, bonds backed by those sponsors so that's a very safe version yeah, of Yeah, exactly. They were <laughs> first of all you're you're getting a rated guarantee from those entities and then you're also getting their their the, the buildings, assets, the assets, yeah. their collateral. So I mean, it was a great way to kind of die, get CMBS started again because it was something that, you know, bond investors could easily understand and it was a good way to sort of tip And it wasn't that big it. either, right? It was a, I recall it being just a couple hundred thousand, a couple hundred million. Yeah. yeah, that would make sense. Like, I mean, again, I think they're you're trying to get to a point where you want to make sure there's enough bidders to you know, clear the market. And, you know, there hadn't been anything done for a little while. And since then, you know, IMC has done a few transactions. R, uh, RBC has done a few transactions. I believe they're in the market where they're a second deal of the year. So it's it's coming back. I'd say that the the trick is, you know, in a, not just CMBS, but other uh, fixed income uh, products in the capital markets, it's, it's very difficult these days to kind of peg where you think things will be. And I don't know, maybe I was just a lot younger then, but I, I certainly don't remember the the constant fear and panic of, uh, you know, the news cycle that, you know, exists today. I don't know whether it's an internet thing or whatever, but, you know, there's there seems to always be some sort of uh, a news item that's kind of driving the markets, you know, is Russia invading some places, you know, North Korea rattling sabers, is, you know, Brexit happening. It just, that seems to just drive the capital markets left, right. So it's very difficult when you have to do a long a mortgage and you have that kind of frothiness in your exit where you're going to sell bonds. It's or potential frothiness, which is, I guess, the, the challenge, right? And still yeah. price competitively. It's a lot of uh, interest there you got to balance. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that, that's really, that's where the, 
the trouble lies as knowing your exit, really. I mean, CMBS, if you knew your exit would be, you know, very uh, easy market to understand right now, especially for, you know, kind of mid-sized firms like First National, we, you know, it's tough for us to tie up that, that capital on a balance sheet. Like the idea of CMBS is top the capital markets. And if you can't do that, there's really no point in doing the product. So if we're unsure of the exit, then we will be unlikely to be participating in any meaningful way. If we have some decent clarity as to where the you know where we can sell bonds at, we'll be back in. So it's kind of one of these things where we're you know depending on you know, our risk uh, appetite for for where we can sell those bonds, we'll either be quoting CMBS or we won't be. Yeah. So and just for transparency purposes, I mean, First National contributed to uh, a, a pool with CMLS. Was that late 2014? That's correct. Um, and we're, we've been, you know, if we come across an opportunity for a good client of ours that we think fits something that might might fit into a CMBS pool, we may we may offer that solution to them. But we're not really active right now in the in the I'd CMBS w- market. Yeah. One one area where it's still of some interest again cmbs is typically a 10-year product and in canada the the conventional market really is a five-year or, or less product that just fits the uh, banks you know funding you know funding mechanisms it's just it's an easier way for them to raise capital in the five-year market so cmbs still you know has a home for five-year borrowers that you know if they're willing to pay this you know the spreads that will allow guys to to you know be Fairly, you know, not to be ridiculously profitable, but they need to be able to sell the bonds at least, you know, break even. So, um, but uh, you know, with this, the, the way the you know the credit curve is right now, and, and people's expectation of where interest rates are going, a lot of people are just willing to. You know, five year, not really worried, not worried about, about ten years. So it's, it's less and, and so so and today, so RBC came to market in April, May, so sort of late spring this year, mid spring with what a three hundred eighty million dollar pool. Yeah, I think that's something along those lines. And then and they've got another one that's sort of uh, in the market right now that they're they're uh, out out showing and presenting to potential bond buyers. Yeah, my understanding, yeah, there is they're, they're out uh, meeting investors now, engaging interest, and hopefully sell those bonds. Hopefully, it's a successful transaction. So who, who, borrowers, so, really. so who who typically buys these bonds, right? Like if you're out there. You let's say we're an originator. We originate, you know, a couple hundred million dollars worth of mortgages. Who buys the bonds? Like when we sell them into the trust, who is the who is the purchaser at the end of the day? Well, there's generally a lot of pension fund investors, and I yeah. mean that's the other thing that's really interesting is the, you know there seems to be this you know massive chase on for you know, for yield for investors and. You know, CMBS is a perfect way for guys that don't know real estate or don't know commercial mortgages to get exposure to it yet. So you, th- you think it would be a natural play for these pension funds and other guys that, that want hedge to get, funds, yeah, anybody else? That's because they're, they're investment rated, managers. Right? Yeah, they're requirements. rated. Yeah, and you got the real estate, right? It's not just you know like a government guaranteed bond where you're really just relying on the guarantee of the government. You let's say you know in, in the worst case scenario, the government's no longer there to ever to support the guarantee. You still own the real estate in yeah. theory. And typically right? in Canada, even though it, it, you know non recourse is offered, most of the most of the transactions still offer some sort of recourse to something other than the property. So, you know. It is the mortgages are not, you know, I think there may be a perception that they were, I don't know, riskier or something like that, where it's that really is not the case. Like it's they're underwritten like any other properties. In fact, they they really are, are kind of held to a higher standard, at least in my opinion, because they have to go through kind of an internal credit committee at First National. But we know at the end of the day that we have to sell those mortgages, which means that it's going to go through. The accounts for the deal. It's going to go for the lawyers for the deal. The it's rating going to go agencies. Through, the rating agencies are going to call through it. All the investors buying the bonds are entitled to ask questions. 
And furthermore, the, the lowest grade investor, the guy buying the below investment grade bonds is usually a real estate professional. They are crawling through all the documents, all the loan files, you know, trying to get the best deal for themselves. So you better not have missed anything when you're putting together your, your loans because they will, you know, retrade you at the end of the day and drive, you know, can drive the price drive down. The price down. So there's a lot of extra eyes on these loans after they're funded. And, you know, I think the really low delinquency rate, even through some really tough times kind of speaks to that. So it's a very, you know, a, Safe. Very disciplined form of lending. And I think, you know, there's often been you know, the thought that it is not, that it is riskier, which I take, you know, exception to. But and what's the uh, predominant, we'll say, borrower and asset going into, into pools these days? You know, who is this attractive to? What would a borrower see in this that uh, would have drawn? Aside from the fact that it has the the ten year, the potential to do a ten year term, which is just not that readily available yeah. out there. Well, I think that that general that truly is one of the ma- major selling features now. Like, I mean, CMBS just because of where the the bonds are trading, you know, is a wider product, right? Sorry, a wider spread, I think, than the the conventional market right now. So, you know. It has to differentiate itself really with term, to be honest with you. But it's you know the the leverages are not that you know they're not that conservative. It really depends on your lender, right? Like the cheapest the cheapest sources of funds are going to be life codes. But you know what they want? They want the trophy asset, sixty percent leverage, twenty year M. You know if you want to start moving up a little bit to get like a twenty five year M or you know seventy to seventy five percent leverage, you know you're moving into a different tier of lender. Maybe you know not not a Sked A bank, but a smaller bank or a credit union. You know that's kind of uh, that tier of lending is where CMBS really does play. So and just to tie full circle, we were talking about prices throughout the throughout the history of CMBS, and today you know a typical conventional pricing for that A ish. Uh, tier product is in that sort of government of Canada's plus two hundred range, and 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 CMBS today for some of the the better the better price stuff is about what GOC plus three hundred two ninety five. Yeah, I'd, kind say, of I'd thing. say it's kind of in the again everything depends on you know the deal, the leverage, the asset class. But yeah. I mean, I think it'd be anywhere from like for kind of average stuff running those stuff. It's going to be like two seventy five to. You know, 300 spread over the you know the five or ten year GOC. Again, if one of the quirks of of CMBS is the uh, ten year is priced generally, at least on spread, a little sharper uh, coupon because of the because of the demand for the ten year product on the other side of it all. Well, it's mainly because I mean the what happens at the end of the day is the when it gets sold into securitization, the the issuer, the originator, is crystallizing a PV of over ten years as opposed to five years. So right. they only need you know they don't need as much spread to make the same profit. But on a on a ten year loan versus a five year loan, so that's why it's a natural fit for the uh, the ten year bucket. I, I love that. I love this topic, Adam. You got anything else to mention? I think we've kind of gone through all of the list of questions I have. We kind of covered at the top, but just one other uh, one other item was the what I don't call them fringe, but I guess asset classes that don't have as much uh, mortgage options, self storage, hotels. They're uh, they're they're a decent fit for yeah. Because just cl- clarifying that you go around the room with Lifeco's and you know Skeda banks, and they'll say, yeah, I typically stick to the four major food groups, right? The multi-res, office, retail, and industrial. And so for those things that are you know not fit in that box, CMBS is a good place for some of these things to land. Certainly, it's it again. It gets back to in order to ha- have a pool that kind of works, um, at least in terms of the eyes of the rating agency, everybody else. You want to have some di- diversification, and that's. Geography as well as asset class, so you don't want to be lumped into, you know, one asset class that you know maybe something goes wrong in that asset class office or something, and then you know you you have a massive exposure to it. So you do want to have some balance. Now, you don't want to be with some of the riskier asset classes, say hotels, for example. 
you know, they would generally want to try to limit their a pool would want to limit its exposure to riskier asset class like uh, like hotels to certainly less than ten percent of a pool. I would say so. You know, there's a home for some of that stuff, but you know, you can't show up at a pool that's half hotels. Like you just gotta you know, you got to be smart about it. You want to have you know probably at least as far as tra- you know, traditionally the it's been there's been a quite a bit of anchored retail. Not as much multifamily, mainly because the CMHC market takes a lot of that product off the shelf. It's such a competitive, com- competitively priced uh, product that makes CMBS certainly now makes CMBS uh, difficult to compete unless the people are looking to go long or or get more leverage than uh, CMHC is offering. But you know, partly because as well, the ten-year money is readily available through, through CMHC. Yeah, yeah exactly. So I mean, yeah. it's. It, traditionally, you know, would you know? I think CMBS would love to have more multifamily, but you know, it gets crowded out by C, uh, CMHC. So, you know, really, like the the larger loans and the larger borrowers were stuff like you know, Walmart anchored center, you know, with long leases, and you could really understand the credit. So that that tended to be retail probably was forty to fifty percent of the most of the pools, and then you know, the industrial, office, self storage, you know, retirement. You know, all those classes. I would say kind of retirement, self-storage, hotels, generally you're going to try to limit your pool to 15% or less. And then the, the rest of the asset classes could fill in the, the gaps. And then you want to make sure that your your, your geography was uh, spaced out as well. So there's a little bit of an art, art to it to satisfy rating agencies and everybody else. But um, but yeah, there, were, there weren't a lot of asset classes provided that they could produce a decent uh, debt service. Uh, that were uh, you know out of bounds, and that was the other thing that was interesting about it. There wasn't so much of a hang up on where they were located. If there was a good history, and you could really show that there was cash flow there, there was there wasn't much hesitation to go to the Maritimes, for example. Whereas some lenders say Maritimes, I'm not there, or if I'm not in a big five center, I'm not interested. Yeah, or or, or sometimes tertiary markets. If you've got the one major uh, retail center in a Lindsay, Ontario, for instance, like that's something that could be attractive, regardless of the fact that it's in a small town. If it's got a long history and that's where everyone shops, then that's you know yeah. there's, there's often, no limits. I often like those those centers because I could see where the rents were. There's no way anyone was going to build anything to compete against, and you know, provided it wasn't like a one horse town where the you know mine shuts down and everything's done, you know, you really could understand the real estate. And there was so there wasn't as much of a panic as to, boy, this is a you know too small a market for us to be in. So that was another kind of. You know, competitive edge to CMBS is that we weren't shutting the doors on some of those, those small. Just markets. for those for those at home, keeping notes. I know writing frivolously right now. The the whole point on that is is you got cash flow. So if the if the cash flow is generating the property is generating the cash flow, there's going to be enough money there to make sure that the bondholders get their get right. their their returns. Uh, you know, whatever the payment schedule is, and that's really the focus, not the geography, not the sponsorship. Yeah, it's all about the cash flow. Yeah, that's the name of the game. Really, is it? It it really is debt service lending. Like, you know, there's certainly a, you know, a nod to the where the valuation was. You don't want to be too far offside of that because at the end of the day, someone has to pay back the balloon balance. But the real crux of it was making sure that those bondholders weren't going to have any hiccups on their their cash flow. So, you know, good stability. And and if there were kind of you know horizon risk, like a big uh, maturity or something, you know, there would often be maybe a leasing reserve or there was some structure to the finance in, in order to make sure the investors were getting their money at the end of the day. Awesome, Dave. I think yeah, uh, that was great. Yeah, I mean, we're we're all lenders, so we're following this conversation. We're <laughs> yeah. it at home. It's uh, <laughs> give it another yeah. listen. I guess be the best advice. Yeah, you send uh, all, send yeah. all questions to the uh, to the website. I'm sure Adam will answer them. Yeah, yeah as yeah. quickly as possible. Yeah. Now, uh, for something that everybody can probably understand, we're asking Dave to do his best and worst day in oh, real geez. estate. Yeah, I almost forgot about this part. 
Okay, I would say maybe maybe I'll finish on a better note than my worst story. So I'll start with the worst story. What the worst is maybe not one single day, but it was certainly you know uh, maybe an obvious answer. But the credit crisis just you know there wasn't a lot of clarity as what was happening. But you know as time rolled along, it quickly became evident that this was going to be a massive problem. I think we probably had a staff of forty plus people in my division at Merrill Lynch and. It was kind of a death by a thousand cuts. I think we probably had seven or eight uh, layoffs, and the layoffs weren't always that pleasant. We got we got phoned at our desk if we were being laid off, and everyone would sort of sit around and wait for the phones to stop ringing. So we went through that a number of times. Of you know, seeing good friends you know you know leave that way was certainly not pleasant. And having to wake up every day with you know Merrill Lynch in the headlines is is this thing going to fail or not? And having already watched kind of Bear Stearns fail and then Lehman Brothers, you know. That was not easy with you know, a young family and things like that. So that that was probably my worst time in real estate, and I mean, uh, my best time. I've had you know, I've had a lot of good times over the years. If I had to pick one kind of event, was um, I worked on a very large transaction. Uh, it was a new office build on Young Street, Young and uh, Finch, I believe, and it was a hundred and fifteen million dollar mortgage. And it was a mortgage that we kind of scooped at the last second from somebody else, and I kind of worked on it myself from start to finish, and. You know, we we went from getting some basic information to closing the deal in two weeks. So that's incredible and, for a mortgage that size. Yeah, so, at the end of the day, I was pretty you know proud proud of myself, but uh, and tired. also, also and tired, very nervous sure. at the same time. I remember it funding and going, boy, I hope I did that correctly. <laughs> <laughs> and did you? Yeah, yeah so actually, you know, yeah, it uh, performed. Yeah, we had. I mean, the trick on that one was again, we had to get the rating agencies on side, and that was. Um, it was actually what was called a fusion deal. We actually took that one mortgage and bolted it on to a uh, CMBS securitization. So that was the first time it had been done in Canada. So that was, that was a, you know, having that completed successfully is probably one of the high water marks for me. Wow. Yeah, that must have been a great day. Hmm. Uh, up next, we've got the news. Aaron, do you want to go first? Yeah, sure. So, you... so, you know, we try not to make this Toronto centric, but I'm sorry. This is, this is just something that I find real interesting. And it was announced the last couple of weeks. The, um, the JV between Allied and Rio can for the large mixed use development at the corner of, uh, Front and Spadina. So if anyone from Toronto will know the, the neighborhood well, it's, it's the, um, what used to be a Nissan car dealership adjacent to the, um, the Globe and Mail. Print house, I guess, right, and so they've they've bought that whole land, and they're they're building. There's just a massive development, it, um, and it, it's got a million square feet of office. And I guess that's what I really want to focus on. And I'll throw some other numbers. The the space is seven point seven acres. It's you know fifteen fifteen hundred residential units plus another four hundred fifty thousand square feet of retail. But the million square feet of office is really what's what's curious. Is you know. For as long as I can remember, it's always been a bit of a you know concern if if the office space coming on in Toronto can be absorbed. And then there's news this week that it's the lowest, um, what is the lowest uh, vacancy rate in da- downtown core in North America. Yeah, That's we, we talked about this. So uh, last we mentioned last so week, yeah, four point four percent. It's insane, right? And and for all intents and purposes, still going down. And I I pulled up some other information. There's a there's a we call a South Core SoCo, which is sort of just south of Union, where there's a ton of office being built right now. And another. Um, I got another 1.3 million square feet coming on just in that that down little that little area south of the Union Station, and they're saying that the vacancy rates for office right now in that neighborhood is 2.3 percent. So that's sort of a, a sub sub 
the submarket of the greater office market in, in the D- Toronto core, which is which is insane that their vacancy rates in office space that are that low. And then just some more. I mean, they've got another 600,000 square foot LCBO uh, tower that was just released. It's another office, more office space, uh, 6.3 million square feet of office that are that are in the plan or in the works or being constructed right now. And that's just an amazing amount. And then you start thinking about what contributes to the economics of this. Like, what is it that are making these developers say, huh, like that, that might be profitable for me. And I, and I think it has to be just the following of, of amenities from the condo developments. I mean, we've had, I, I, don't, I have no idea what the numbers are, but tens and tens and maybe even hundreds of thousands of, of units being built in the downtown core over the last 7, 10, 12 years. So you've got, you've got a huge new population. It used to be 22, 23, 25, 27 year olds, sort of yuppies buying those units. And they're now still living there, but they're all 32, 33, 34, um, you know, looking to start families, but not wanting to leave the downtown core. And I think you're seeing um, employers uh, realizing that the only way they're going to attract the top end talent is to follow uh, to follow the demographics and follow where the all the the major source of new employers are, are are living, right? And so you've got a baby boomer generation all in there, sort of 55 to 65 age that are slowly exiting the workforce. And you got to replace them somehow. And and I'll be honest, I don't think the generation of those that bought condos downtown want to commute to Markham or Brampton to work. They just don't. They want to stay downtown. And so you're seeing this this follow of of all of these people that now live in the downtown core that don't want to go anywhere else. So it's just interesting to see what happens next. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, well, there's actually two good real estate plays in the story you've got. There's, of course, Allied Rio Can building this massive development, but I don't care how many Nissans that dealership owner sold. <laughs> yeah. He's a real estate guy. He must have made out like a bandit whenever he bought that land. And it was just I mean, oh, quasi-industrial I, land by 30 years ago. Yeah, you must have made out yeah, so I, well. It was a Nissan dealership as far as I can remember. I mean, I don't think it was anything else before that, or who knows what it was before that. But Well, if they get that park, too, it'll be uh, worth a fair penny. <laughs> What's that? I think that's in there where they want to put that park over the rail lands. Like right in front of it, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Well, and then even in the, one of the articles I read, I was talking about how Rio Can and, and, and uh, Allied are pushing the city to have a one of the GO trains stop at that, at their office space saying, Hey, I got 1500 people living here. They're bound to be using the go train, but that's kind of counterintuitive to the fact that they just want to walk to work. Why do you need a go train station attached to this thing? If it's <laughs> yeah. supposed to be for people that want to live, live at work and play downtown, but yeah. anyway, we'll see what happens. How about you? What do you got? So earlier this month, I attended the apartment investment conference run by Informa. And so what I've done is the, the way to, to sum it up, I just took the three top tweets from that event. You know, they always have a hashtag that goes out for these events and you can follow along. So the first one I've got is from at map your property. It's this conference is packed. GTA real estate is booming 50, 50 of foreign local investors. And that was from uh, a panel run by Jason Lowe of Altus. I was shocked to hear that you'd find a mix 50, 50 of foreign local investment and commercial um, in the GTA. I'm not going to doubt Jason because he's from Altus and they're you know, the most respected in the industry. Yeah. But uh, that, that was news to me. That it, was, it was that high. It's, uh, it's incredible. The uh, second one is also from at Map Your Property. They were very, very active tweeters that day. Apparently. Uh, yeah. yeah, no, they were, they were all over it. The lack of land supply is number one reason price is high due to government policy. And that was during um, Ben Tall's session uh, in the morning. I mean, it's no news. Obviously, the Greenbelt 
Um, but, you know, for apartments especially, they've not been functional for a long time, especially landing, uh, rising land values. But now, you know, with cap rates getting so compressed, it, you know, it's there. But it's, it's got to be tough trying to make a brand new apartment build work on land you're buying at today's prices. So I'll stop you right there. When uh, we're prepping for these these podcasts, um, Adam and I are talking about, we're going to talk about what the news is, you know, what, what the discussions and conversations are going to be with our guests. And Adam came to me um, earlier and said, hey, I'm not going to do the news. I'm going to do the top three uh, tweets from the real estate forum, the apartment forum. I said, yeah, that's a great idea. And I'm looking at glancing across and I now realize why. So what's the what's the third most popular tweet, Adam? Well, the third one. This is a, this is exciting news. It's my own tweet. <laughs> <laughs> See, I knew there was an angle here. No wonder you wanted to do Just, this. Uh, you know, shameless uh, self promotion <laughs> for my Twitter account at Adam Powatic. But nobody can spell my last name, so it's irrelevant. But this one, P O W. So this one, it, this was during uh, the session talking about what's important to renters, and so they had a ranking of answers. From a large market survey done, I think 1,400 renters were surveyed. Number one is price, which makes perfect sense to me. Number two is location, which also makes sense. The third was quality. And the fourth was size. And that's where it starts hmm. to fall apart for me. Personally, I'd rather have a larger, crappier apartment Absolutely. than Absolutely. a well-furnished or a well-finished uh, well a uh, shoebox, but apparently that's what renters want. They're happy to take granite countertops. Eh? Well, so I was in one of the one of the concurrent sessions, and and there was um, and I'm sorry, I don't remember the name of the developer, but they were trying to to pitch micro apartments, and the whole concept was why do you need space? Why do you need an, a, a, an, a you know a living room or a dining room? All you need is a place to lie your head at night because you've got you know, a, one billion square feet of livable space right outside the condo in the coffee shops and the parks and the libraries and everything at your footsteps, right? So everything at your front door. Um, and I, maybe that's, maybe that is a shift in, in just, you know, buyer sentiment that its size is less of an importance now because of how much, how nice it is to live downtown, how nice it is to have those amenities at your, at your, why, why, why cook in your kitchen when you can go to a, you know, a five-star restaurant down the street? I've got, uh, well, now I'm, I'm in my, my late 30s, so it's probably more my late 20s. I have friends that lived in smaller places, and that was the exact that was the exact theory. Their you know their their apartment was the whole downtown. Yeah. Uh, I know that you know in um, condos in South Korea, they're they're they'll layer in retail every seventh floor all the way up to 27 story yeah. tower. I think Aaron, you've been to that country. So yeah, yeah. No, I lived in Korea for a year, and you're absolutely right. And, and you know, I found it in both Korea and Japan. Like Tokyo's like that. They don't have common areas for their families, right? And you want to you want to hang out with your friends and family. It's not like here where you invite them over to your house and you know extend your dining room to sit 15 people and everybody hanging around. They don't have that kind of space. So you 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 hang out outside. You hang out in the city. So 11 o'clock at night on a Wednesday, and it's still packed because if either you're home in bed. Or you're out because there's there's no in between. You're not at home in your living room or in your family room watching TV. It just doesn't work that way. Um, and so maybe that's the way it's going. I mean, I I still play this game. I mean, aside from the whole you know office development downtown because of the the, the demographics living in this area in the region. Um, what happens when they get married and want to have kids? I mean, do they move to Brampton or King City or further outside of the core, or do they decide you know what I'm just going to raise my kid in a 400 square foot one bedroom plus den, and they can deal with the fact that I don't, they don't have any space and they don't have a backyard and, you know, yada, yada, yada. I just don't know. I don't know if that, that's going to change or not. Well, millions of New Yorkers would show that you can live that way. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. right? Yeah. And so does the downtown core of Toronto have that kind of attraction that a Manhattan does? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. 
Maybe, maybe one day, maybe it does today. I don't know. This is our Torontonian inferiority complex. Yeah, seriously. No, no, no. We're the center of the universe. No, really, we are. <laughs> Go Leafs. <laughs> yeah. So that that is my three in the. That's that's the, the news cool. coverage. Well, thanks uh, thanks to Dave Morrison for joining us. That was a very informative. I I love that topic. We'll maybe uh, pause it for a year and come back and see what's going on in a year from now because it's you know it's so volatile. You never know what's going to happen. You're going to get a phone call at the end of this saying, "Hey, CMS is back on. Go originate three hundred million dollars of mortgages." That or a lot of, a lot of calls about hotels. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that too. Um, so as always, if you enjoyed the podcast, tell a friend. And if you want to subscribe, just go to CREpodcast.com, click on the subscribe icon, and a list of options will come up showing you uh, your likely platform, whether it's iTunes or Google Play. You can sort that out for yourself, but it's all there. So thanks, everybody. and uh, thanks, thanks for listening. David. Thank you for listening to the CRE Podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.